Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Welcome to Emory Innovators, which showcases conversations with Emory faculty, staff, and alumni who work in innovation and entrepreneurship, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Today, it's our pleasure to welcome alumnus Chris Kennedy, founder and chief investment officer of Forden Brass Asset Management, or FAM. Chris graduated summa cum laude from Emory's College of Arts and Sciences with a joint BA, MA in English in 1990, spent five years with Citibank in Germany, and then went on to earn an MBA in finance from the Wharton School in 1997. In 2004, he co-founded Fortinbras Asset Management as a specialized fixed income boutique in Frankfurt, Germany, with a focus on investment programs for institutional pension funds. Since its founding, FAM has raised $2.8 billion in assets for investment in programs the company manages. FAM sold its third-party asset management business to a Chinese fintech in 2017, but retains an intellectual property shop that designs and builds systematic trading systems and strategies. For the past year, FAM has been using these trading algorithms in the carbon markets as they expect to launch a product in this space in 2022. In 2021, Chris received an Emory Entrepreneur Award as an industry disruptor in financial services. Chris met his wife, Elizabeth, at Emory, and they have raised their two teenage children in Austria. Chris, thanks so much for joining Emory Innovators today. Well, thanks for having me, Shannon. Glad to be here. So today we'll dig into your entrepreneurial journey as founder and chief investment officer of Fortinbras, uh, but I'd like to start this innovation journey earlier. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your time at Emory. What brought you to the College of Arts and Sciences and what inspired you to be an English major? Well, I, I think the, um, it was more uh, just serendipital that I, I came to Emory. I, was, I grew up in St. Louis and, and uh, Washington University is in a lot of people's minds kind of the, 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 the example in St. Louis of kind of the Emory um, whatever he is in, in Atlanta. And I knew I wanted to uh, go to a school kind of like that, but wanted to get out of Dodge and, and leave St. Louis. So I, um, I visited the campus in, in April of whatever year that might've been. And, you know, it's a drop dead, beautiful campus and just fell in love, at least initially with the aesthetics more so than the academics to be quite frank. Um, and so that kind of drew me to the, the school initially um, with regards to the English major, that was also a little bit of, of, of happenstance. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was reading uh, about a publication that uh, Dr. Elizabeth Fox Genovese, uh, one of the Emory uh, professors, had published on, on the author Kate Chopin. And uh, Kate Chopin was a, for those of you who don't know, it's just a part of the, arguably part of the canon of American literature, especially in the Southern or the feminist circles and uh, wrote about contentious subjects and was ostracized in, in, in the turn of last century, so 1900s, uh, when she published the book. And it turns out Fox Genovese was a big uh, Kate Chopin scholar. And uh, it turns out, or just happened to be, I happened to be her uh, great-great-grandson um, of Chopin, not of Fox Genovese. <laughs> And then uh, went into Fox Genovese's office and kind of told her that and her mouth kind of dropped her and she was like, wow, you know, wow, neat. And it was really through that conversation that, that she said to me, well, you know, be an English major. And then as a result of that, um, she introduced me to what's called the BAMA program uh, at Emory where you can get both a bachelor's and a master's kind of at the same time. And she said, I'll be your you know, master's thesis and let's work on this together. Uh, so really, that was more of, of the kind of the back way, the back entrance into, into um, uh, why an English major. And as we'll perhaps see over the course of the conversation, you know, it's not the, the last time that kind of, you know, um, just circumstance or opportunity 
has presented itself in, in a unique way. We definitely had a little pre-conversation where we talked a bit about taking advantage of circumstance or happenstance, and we'll get to that point as well. I'd love to ask one more sort of uh, student-aged question here before we get into your career more deeply. And many of the students we speak with at the hatchery have questions about managing the transition from student life to professional life. But after speaking with successful alumni, over the years, I'm struck by how often their transitions really appear fairly seamless. In fact, I'm tempted to say there's almost an inverse proportion at work where the most successful alumni seem to fall into their careers most naturally. And when you visited the hatchery, you shared the story of an experience you had after your time at Emory while visiting Europe. Uh, when your, as you put it, I think, bohemian aspirations came into focus in a way that really changed the course of your career in life. And I wonder if you could talk about that moment and the course that set you on. Yeah, well, it, um, it, it, you know, I graduated with a degree in, in, in literature and had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and uh, had an opportunity to spend some time, limited time in, in, uh, over in, in Europe. And uh, literally my motivations were to drink beer and learn German. I had, you know, no idea beyond kind of those two, uh, those two uh, goals and quickly realized, you know, I needed to cash flow to finance that lifestyle. So what the hell, um, and then heard about through, uh, various connections in the, in the expat community about a, um, a job, where I had the right qualifications being, A, I spoke English, and B, I had technically on paper a, a graduate degree in the form of that master's that I had uh, finished at, at Emory. So it was, uh, it was a bit of a challenging uh, time, at least immediately post-Emory, um, but I would say that it, was, it, was not, it wasn't couched in, in some kind of a, a strategic design. It was, again, another data point and just how things happened to develop um, by me seeing an opportunity and, and, and taking it at that time. Uh, I'll share a personal anecdote that uh, I had aspirations after high school uh, of drinking beer and learning French. And that's actually a hard yeah, exactly. combination to come by, but I ended up in Belgium for a year, so I did succeed. Uh, and then managed to parlay that briefly into a, a career as a French professor, but certainly haven't parlayed it into quite the life that you've made. So that leads me to a question of, you know, making up your mind to do something is one thing, but actually getting a foot in the door is another. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about how you were able to then find work in Europe and start living out this dream. You mentioned that you had the technical qualifications, as you said, of, yeah. of a graduate degree and fluent English, but what else was really instrumental there? Well, um, the, it was the, the, the job in question, the internship was one at Citibank and uh, the person who kind of, if you will, brokered but introduced me to that opportunity uh, was well aware of my at least technical qualifications on paper, but a lack of understanding of really what was the nature of what I would be doing and said, well, you can apply for this, but, you know, good luck. It's kind of on the trading floor of, of, of the bank and, you know, it's a different, completely different to what you're used to. So just kind of be ready for, um, for, for anything. So, hmm. um, I went into the, uh, showed up at, at you know, five to nine for a 9.00 AM, uh, interview and, um, waited outside this, this, uh, this gentleman's office, um, for about 20 minutes. And then, uh, he opens the door and he says, Kennedy, get in here. Okay. Uh, and so I kind of uh, waddled into his, into his room and he, uh, you know, put his hands behind his head and feet up on the desk. He says, so tell me something about yourself. And I said, hmm. I pause for dramatic effect. I look at him straight in the eyes. I say, I speak 30 words of German. I know nothing about a bank. But I'm gonna work for you. He's like, cut the crap, you start on Monday. You know, that was basically it. Yeah. So it was just, you know, uh, I guess knowing what card to play at, at the right time and kind of playing that. And 
so yeah, that was the you know that was the the the, 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 the start of um, uh, of what then became a career at, at Citibank. So definitely a high risk, high reward approach in that case. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we are inspired. Sure. Right. Well, so I'm curious, did that first job uh, prove to be as kind of bohemian as you'd hoped? And, you know, what were some of the disappointments of those years and what were some of the highlights? Well, I mean, you know, listen, it's, it's the rough and tumble world of, of uh, foreign exchange trading floor. So it is completely, you know, the diametric opposite of the cerebral, um, rarefied world of, of modernist literature that I came from. Um, you know, more testosterone-laden. It was very, very much a, a more brawn than, than, than brain type of uh, an environment. Um, in that sense, you know, it took a little bit of adaptation. Uh, I don't mind um, kind of challenges in, in, in that respect, but I was a little, at least initially, disappointed that it was, you know, uh, that, that there wasn't enough of kind of an intellectual process in that. Um, I say until one of the highlights being <laughs> A, a, a lunch that, that we had in, in, uh, in, in, in Citibank in Frankfurt in, in 1993, must have been. And, you know, there are seven or eight of us around, around the table. And um, as I've described the people on the trading floor, you might not be surprised when the conversation at, at lunchtime turns to either financial markets, um, dating women, uh, playing football or drinking uh, all kinds of alcohol, but uh, you know, under that limited uh, four data points of, of, of topics. And then we're sitting there, and this guy Johan, he starts he starts quoting Kierkegaard. And I say, wait, wait a second, Johan, do you mean Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish existential philosopher? And he looks at me and he's like, you know, is there another Kierkegaard? And uh, then looking around the table, you know, you can see everybody else like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And they had absolutely no idea. And we're left in their world of, of, of you know, European football. Um, and then Johan and I kind of continued that conversation on, on that level. So I would say one of the highlights of, of, of that time was certainly meeting him. And as we'll see perhaps later on, that he features prominently in, uh, in the development of Portland Books. So yeah, it was, you know, it was a bit of a, bit of a challenge to start, but there were, um, uh, there were bright, uh, bright spots kind of here and there. So you were there for a few years, uh, and then you decided to return uh, to pursue uh, MBA and finance at Penn, UPenn's Warden School. What motivated that decision? Well, the, um, you know, if had the academic credentials, at least on, as we said, on paper with, with, uh, the graduate degree, but absolutely knew, you know, really did not know what was going on from a kind of a theoretical point of view. And, um, you know, I slowly worked up the ranks from, from just being kind of a grunt on, on the foreign exchange desk to actually having my own uh, book that I would run. I would run, uh, run proprietary risk with, with the bank's capital um, in, in interest rate derivatives. And that gets a bit more, uh, a bit more technical. And I realized I needed to kind of complement that uh, with, uh, with, with an MBA, so, you know, at, at that time, also 1994, 1995, uh, it was a little bit of a recession in, in, in Europe. So it was certainly a good time to, I think, to make the jump than to go to, uh, um, uh, to Wharton. So I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the years between finishing your degree at Wharton uh, in yeah. 1997, and eventually launching Ford and Brass uh, in 2004. And I'd love to get a sense of what you worked on during those seven years, how this time helped you to refine your kind of long-term professional aspirations, which obviously evolved from, uh, you know, uh, speak German and drink beer to something much broader, and how it, those years provided you with the skills and confidence to then launch uh, FAM. Well, the, uh, the wonderful thing about, the wonderful and the unfortunate thing about, I think, business school in, in general is that it, it, it has a bit of an hourglass shape uh, design in the following sense. Um, they take people from various broad backgrounds. Um, I was a bit of a weird egg in the sense that I had a 
English degree, but worked in finance in that sense. So not so, not so unusual, but there were people at Wharton, um, teammate at Wharton was a play-by-play announcer for the Philadelphia 76ers. And so I think there was another one who actually danced with the, the, the Bolshoi in, 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 in Moscow. I mean, you know, really wide uh, range of, 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 of um, backgrounds. And then it goes into this very out, narrow um, uh, channel of one of three um, careers. And that is, it prepares you for investment banking, it prepares you for consulting, or prepares you for mark, marketing. And uh, unfortunately, and then afterwards, you uh, you, you broaden, I think, uh, the, uh, beyond that, people then kind of gravitate to other things. But if you can kind of see this hourglass shape uh, of the process. And I unfortunately fell victim to, to you know, to the consulting gig. Um, I needed, wanted to move back to Europe and needed to kind of pay for that, uh, that, that, uh, that experience. And so was consulting was the way to do it. But, um, you know, I think it, it um, articulated a philosophy by, by showing what the opposite is. And the philosophy is, you know, do what you love and love what you do. Um, and I did not love consulting. I mean, it was, it's just not, um, my particular gig was, 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 I didn't see value in what we were doing for the client. We were literally taking, borrowing his watch to tell him what time it was. Um, but I think, you know, what, what, what annoyed me the most was just, you know, a, a lack of a better uh, word, uh, just the corporate bullshit. Uh, around that, and, and, and evidenced by, um, you know, we'd be at the client site until you know, eight thirty, nine p.m. at night, and you know, we had ceased doing productive um, uh, work, you know, two hours ago or an hour ago, but everybody was sticking around just for the virtue of FaceTime, and, and I just found it completely uh, obnoxious, and I wanted to go to the gym, uh, get an early dinner, go to bed. Uh, but it's just like, you know, a complete waste of time. And um, with that said, that's, you know, the, the other industries, investment banking also is not immune towards, towards kind of the, 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 the fallacies of FaceTime. But I really realized at that time, uh, more by negative example of what I don't want to do. I, what I didn't want to do was, was continue kind of on a corporate gig. So I, you know, I did my time, if you will, with consulting, um, and then basically said, you know, screw this, and, and, and set up my own shop. So since 2004, you've been the founder and chief investment officer for Ford Invest. Could you tell us more about uh, FAM and uh, what your day-to-day with the company is like, uh, other than uh, being able to work from a very impressive personal library? Uh, if there are other other aspects you'd like to add Uh, thank you thank you Uh, yeah the um the the day-to-days i mean not just having kind of a a very nice uh, home office gig uh the day-to-day um involvement is basically on the business development side um you know fort is a is a systematic we create systematic trading strategies we work with investment banks who then package those strategies up into structured product and then distribute those to pension funds um, you know, in Scandinavia or private banks in Switzerland or commercial banks and in, in, uh, insurance companies in, in, in Japan. So a very um, institutional background. Now, the nature of what we're doing is, is, is very quantitative in, in, in nature. And I really see a lot of kind of my um, role, at least initially, was to create a narrative around these quantitative trend models uh, in a way that made sense for somebody who isn't so deep into the into the material. And um, you know, I work with a lot of quants. Um, uh, most of them have PhDs in, in respective fields of physics or, or mathematics uh, or finance. And <laughs> An example of kind of the challenges that we had was I was having a conversation with uh, one of these, um, one of the, the quants at, at one of these investment banks. And uh, this gentleman was uh, linguistically very challenged and he was trying to explain a concept. And he was stuttering and not making sense. And uh, his boss was just fed up. And she eventually said, 
gave him a piece of paper and a pencil and said, write down the formula. He said, okay. And he writes down this big formula and it was literally uh, Greek. You know, it was sigmas and alphas and betas. And says, this is what I mean. And he kind of shows it to me. So, um, you know, it was my challenge, if you will, to kind of translate kind of that world into a world that, that, that investors who are mathematically and, and numerically gifted, of course, but not at the level perhaps of the, of the billionaire. So I would say, you know, on the business development side, it's really, it's really around those, uh, uh, the, the challenge of kind of creating, of, of monetizing and commercializing uh, those, uh, those business models. So given that your role has been sort of around creating a narrative uh, around these uh, systems, I'm wondering if you could spin out the narrative a little bit for folks in the audience who don't know this world around what a systematic trading system is and kind of how it generates value. Yeah, well, a, uh, I mean, there are different ways to kind of, uh, as an asset manager, we have fiduciary responsibility over, over investors' money. And as I said, pension funds have an obligation to pensionees, the pensioners that we require that they get uh, paid the pensions. Um, so, you know, there is a, a huge degree of responsibility around, um, uh, well, <laughs> I, I would say that the, the financial equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath in uh, to, to doctors, do, first, do no harm. Uh, the, the financial market approximation of that is, you know, first, do not lose money. So I think that the, at, the very, at the very least, um, you know, that was kind of our mantra. And, and, um, uh, but what systematic models do is, is, is they create, it's an algorithmic um, uh, code, essentially, that detects momentum or trends in the market and then signals whether this market will continue to, to, to rise or whether this market will continue to, uh, to fall and then positions it accordingly with, with whatever kind of derivative of the, um, uh, the underlying that we were looking at at that time. So for those of, uh, of you who are not kind of into the know of what um, uh, trend models are, you know, it's basically a way to, to remove, if you will, the human elements of the decision-making process, code that up into a set of rules, and then just have those rules make the decisions. It's interesting. It's not something I would have known previously, but just the other day I was listening to a conversation, a podcast that I stumbled upon about this very topic, and I didn't realize how closely it re related it was. And one of the challenges that this particular person had run into was that they had one rule that overrode the others. And it was that with certain decreases, it sort of took out the other investment criteria. And yep. so it ended up signaling a stop at one yep. point when in fact, had it not done that, the continued fall would have triggered the other parts of the system in a way that would have generated a lot of money. And instead it yep. stopped at a loss. So it's an interesting world that I don't understand much of, but there's my narrative about how, <laughs> to me as a, somebody who doesn't understand, that could be very important. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, listen, it is, um, it's, it's, it's not guaranteed, you know, and at the bottom of, of, of every sheet on, on, our, on our, our pitch book says, you know, you know investors are not guaranteed. Um, uh, these sums, and at the end of the day, you know, it is one of many um, uh, approaches to invest money, but it's not certainly not the the the, the, the only one. I mean, the the uh, if you take that example that you just mentioned, and we'll look at it kind of the other way. I mean, if, if they were a let's just say they had an investment committee and, and used their decision-making process, not by a system of rules, but uh, by just kind of an investment committee. You could also have a, situ a, a certain situation. I mean, post uh, 2008, a lot of people just said, oh, wow, the market's going to hell and they'll sell and they sold at the mm -hmm. bottom and then mm -hmm. had they stuck with it or even topped up at that, at that point, they would have made money. So, you know, no, uh, no strategies immune from what we call in the, in the, in the language uh, of finance, uh, drawdowns, that is mm -hmm. when you experience losses, the challenge is, of course, to limit those drawdowns or not to trade on the wrong way uh, 
So I'd like to step into a question around something you just said, which is this question of committee and community, really, uh, and how these things uh, impact the, uh, the systems you ultimately build. Maybe you could walk us through what the early years of building the firm looked like. And at what moment did you know you'd hit a tipping point where you had a really successful company that could kind of carry you through the rest of your career after a few years where you'd experimented with various things? Well, I think that the, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, of, of literature around, um, well, I would, I, would, I would summarize it by saying uh, the who, the what, and the how, and in that order. And um, what I mean very specifically in terms of kind of um, creating the company, you can look at those three questions again in that order. And uh, there's been a lot of, of, of you know, academic literature and management gurus talking about kind of how important the team is. And in, in this case, it really is it really is very important. And as I mentioned um, back, my that, that Kierkegaard guy, um, Jochen. Uh, was a guy who actually ended up then co-founding uh, Fortinbras, and the um, you know the story there was was a little bit on um, you know we decided to just broad loose contact over the years. I went to Wharton and, and consulting, and you know we kind of lost contact a little bit, and then met up at a bar in in in, uh, in, in Frankfurt, um, not necessarily with the idea of creating a company, but just seeing what you know what's going on and. He was also kind of looking for uh, for for a new gig. Um, you know, we spent the first part of that evening just talking about you know, existential philosophy or or various things, and then you know, it really was kind of a. a um, Johan and I are very 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 different people from a personality point of view. Um, he's much more introverted, much more numbers focused, on more to the big picture. Um, but we have a mutual respect for each other and a mutual appreciation for what we're doing. So I would say the first thing about building the, 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 the team, if you will, is kind of the, the who um, of that. And I would let to add my experience here to the chorus of, of other people who talk uh, about how important kind of those relationships are. Even more so, and that's why I say first the who before the what, because sometimes it's even more important that you get the team right rather than the actual what do you do? Um, and the nature of what we did was basically to take these, the what in our case was, were, uh, were these, these trend models that Johan had created. Um, and he said to me at that bar, you know, he had been trading these things and still, you know, he was looking to, 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 to jump ship from where he was, but he owned the intellectual property rights to these, uh, to these trend models. So let's go ahead and, and um, you know, is there something there? And I'm like, well, you know, okay, let's look at that. So. The what, um, a little bit to what you were saying, Shannon, about kind of how things just kind of almost gravitate naturally in, 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 in a narrative or a flow. Um, the what then was almost born out of kind of this, you know, we said, oh, let's look at things together. And it wasn't clear really at that time that we're going to do a company, but, but ultimately we did. And then the third thing, when I see the how, the who, the what, and now the how, um, is really to say, I mean, Jochen was extremely cost focused. This guy comes from an area of Germany called Schwaben, uh, where they are, you know, they're like the, I don't know what the equivalent is in the United States, but in English, um, uh, it's the, the Scots. They're very, very focused on, on, on uh, not spending, <laughs> not spending money. <laughs> what at the later stage, Jochen came to me in my office one day. He was joking about this, I think, and he said, Chris. At this great idea how we're going to save our tax expense. Johan, all ears. Like, Let's not have any revenues. You're joking, right? Anyway, he was, but the point there is, is that in, the, in terms of the how, it was let's be very focused on costs. Let's make sure this thing is is, is profitable from the, from the day one, and that meant really outsourcing a lot of uh, a lot of the things that were um, uh, that were not germane to what we were doing, which was to do these trend models. And in terms of the tipping point, I would really say that that, that 2008 um, the financial crisis for a lot of people was uh, uh, was was a disaster. Um, 
prior to the Lehman bankruptcy in 2008, um, interest rates were very, very high. Uh, they started to drift on lower. Uh, so we were already going into the crisis positioned for a trend of lower interest rates. And uh, then came the crisis and that precipitated a trend that was already in motion and we just capitalized like, uh, like crazy on that. And that was really, if you will, kind of the tipping point where we said, all right, fine, you know, it is now a, 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 it was beforehand a viable business, but now it was something really where we think we're going to, you know, we'll be able to kind of capitalize uh, um, uh, some of this and kind of be around for the next couple of years. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, as I say, kind of building the, the, the team, the who, what, and the, and the how uh, were the kind of the key elements. And then the, you will the aha effect of of the financial crisis is really oh yeah I mean well we do have something that actually works and generates positive performance for our investors like we said it would. So I'd like to tease out two of the least business like threads of that response and and tie them together yeah. into a little theme I'm seeing here, which is the who manifests in lots of different ways. And I think you may have to be very attuned to that. I, I would point out, for example, that uh, ultimately we've come full circle and that uh, you've gone back to a bohemian story about drinking beer that ultimately launched the company. So I, as, as a non-expert, I would just point out that that gives me hope. Uh, <laughs> but there's also something really interesting uh, about the who in the anecdote you shared about how we cannot pay taxes and this this focus on costs. And so I wonder if you could dive a little deeper into the who that has made Fortinbras uh, so successful, like a little bit more about you and Joachim and how you worked so well together and so successfully. Well, it was it was not just Johan and me. It was it's that a team that we built up uh, around us. Um, you know, and it was very very much a a, a team where I say, hey, listen, you know, um, I want people who are smarter than me um, uh, on board, and smarter me in whatever area that that that, that he or she is is, is focused on. You know, um, and uh, and that's why I like to say that that you know I. We have an average of whatever PhDs in, in specific areas um, are, are, especially with what we're doing, is an integral part of kind of who makes the um, uh, makes up the, the kind of the who element of of that team. But I think really it was um, you know it was a partnership of, of equals with the open. I think just um, part and parcel of kind of the, is the who is is how do you structure the the who. Um, and, um, you know, Jochen, I think in retrospect could have been in a position to say, well, you know, these are my trading models. Um, all you're doing is kind of, you know, putting kind of uh, bells and whistles on it and coloring up a PowerPoint presentation. So, you know, he could have at least early on been of the, of the minds, you know, well, I'll take 60%, you get 40% or something, but it's been a, a wonderful, um, meeting of, of, of philosophical minds with him in the sense that, you know, mutual respect for what each other is doing. And uh, we didn't bitch about the, the, the shareholding or about kind of, you know, this is mine or that's yours, or I did this or you did that. And, and um, you know, Johan was an avid uh, tennis player. I'm an avid swimmer. And each of us had allowed, so, you know, allowed time for each of us to pursue those uh, those hobbies. Um, so I think that the, the, a lot of the, 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 the who is also colored by a shared, I don't want to say philosophy, but shared just kind of interests outside of, of, of what we're doing. Um, you know, Kierkegaard being one, drinking beer being another, or, or you know, having time out for, or for hobbies, uh, or to be with the, you know, take the kids to school uh, in, in, in the morning. So that was a very, very, uh, integral parts of kind of how we build So I'd love to kind of dig into what some of the highlights have been over the last two decades uh, with you at the helm at Ford and Ross, either in terms of internal metrics uh, yeah. of success uh, or in terms of some of the businesses or initiatives that you've been able to you know, support beyond your firm, uh, thanks to the success you've had internally. Well, the, 
the in terms of highlights, I would say that there were um, uh, two highlights and one tragedy. Um, and uh, the first highlight is you mentioned metrics. A um, standard metric in the asset management world is you know assets under management, and we have two point eight billion dollars uh, that we are managing, and you know that is a certain quantum that you know that you um, shake a stick at. It's like okay, yeah, we've if you will arrived. Um, was, into the extent that we've um, generated, uh, accumulated that those, uh, or generated enough trust where people felt comfortable uh, in trusting us and giving us fiduciary responsibility uh, over uh, over their money. Um, so, uh, and related to that is not just kind of the quantum of money, but you know how efficient are you in 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 uh, in, in creating profits with that. And um, what annoys me uh, to, to no end is a lot of people talk about, you know, oh, I made, you know, this return on that, or this return on that, or, you know, my, you know, my strategy is up 20% this year. But uh, a very important metric is not just the return, but the risk-adjusted return, okay? If you made 20%, but how much risk did you employ to, to, to generate that? And in the, uh, uh, in the financial vernacular, there's a word called uh, ratio called the sharp ratio which takes the returns that you generated divided by the volatility which is a proxy for risk in this case and if you have a return of 10 percent but a volatility of 20 well not very efficient but a return of 10 percent the volatility of seven is then perhaps a, a bit better and uh, you know by using the sharp ratio as kind of a broad guide for how efficient were you in managing this 2.8 we had a sharp ratio of above uh, above one, so it's also something where I like to say, you know, it's an industry. Um, I don't know what quartile would be, and it doesn't. I'm not so interested in, in the ranking, but it's certainly something where it's, it's 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 an efficient deployment of capital, given the risk constraints that we have. So that's the first, if you will, um, uh, highlight is you know the quantitative metrics that we use to assess our business in terms of assets under management sharp ratio. Um, the second highlight is, <laughs> is what, I, what we call the exit. And to the extent that some of the listeners here will be aspiring um, uh, entrepreneurs themselves and, you know, the, at the back of their mind potentially, and certainly at the front of a venture capital's mind who might fund their operation is, okay, I'm going to give you some money, but I want this money back, and I want it back in spades. And, and that's usually uh, defined by what, uh, what they say in the venture capital world as an exit. That is, uh, you invest in the company, and then at some point you divest in the company. And the, uh, the backdrop to that is, is back in, in 2017, um, our, a lot of the strategies that we had kind of uh, set up were, uh, were, were slowly maturing. Um, we, it was basically the interest rates uh, cycle that led to the performance in 2008 and post-crisis immediately it kind of tapered off a little bit. And Johan and I were thinking about um, uh, uh, divesting uh, the, or at least shutting down the regulated asset management business that we have. We had two fortune bras. One is the holding company that had the intellectual property. And the other one was the operational company that was a, the, the, the regulated entity in Germany. And, uh, and while we're kind of thinking, actually going through the process of getting together the board resolution to close down this, this regulated business, um, I get this email. And it says, dear Mr. Chris, we want to buy your company. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, three weeks prior, I got an email to the effect of, you know, I'm the ex-finance minister of Equatorial Guinea, and I need help with 500,000. Can you, you know? So I was very, very suspicious. Of, yeah, this is the uh, moment when you wonder if your Amazon Alexa has been listening to your conversation, <laughs> not possibly selling. <laughs> exactly. So Amazon had kind of uh, listened and given these guys a, a tip off that, 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 that we had this. But anyway, so I, I, I deleted it and thought that, well, okay. So 
uh, I sent an email back saying basically, all right, if you're interested, let's, you know, let's talk. Now, it was 3.30 in the afternoon in Frankfurt on a Friday afternoon. And I get a call literally the next minute um, from a guy in Beijing. Um, granted, it's then 9.30 in the evening on Friday evening. And the guy's like, you know, um, you know tell me about your company and you know, we want to buy it. I'm like, okay, uh, well, it happens to be that we were just basically trying to shut it, run it down. He said, no, don't run it down. And, he essentially wanted the uh, the regulatory license. It's easier to kind of purchase a, an existing company rather than go through the, 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 the hoops that you need to get a new company regulated. So the point there with, with that is, is that again, as circumstance, you mentioned earlier um, about um, the quality of, of, of seeing an opportunity, but also taking the initiative to jump through this. And it was really just, I think, I immediately discarded this, but was open to the idea and said, well, okay, let's just send it back in the email and see what, what, what the hell he has to say. So we, um, we, you know, we ended up selling the, 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 the asset management, the regulatory asset management business at that time. And, and to the extent that that was, if you will, an exit of, of, of sorts for us, it was, it was a little bit of kind of emotional closure to kind of that chapter. Uh, in that sense, that is certainly kind of a highlight of, of, of what we're doing. That would be the second highlight. The first one, the risk-adjusted returns in the UM. The second being kind of this, this exit event that we, that, that we realize. Um, yeah, and the tragedy, if, if I have to kind of talk about the major events of, of, uh, of, of Fort Ross, the tragedy of, would be clearly that uh, the passing away of Yoko. He, in 2019, uh, developed a horrible case of, of stomach cancer and um, luckily did not suffer too long and, and passed away uh, uh, almost exactly three years ago to, to, to the day. So it was, um, you know, when you're with somebody for, uh, for, 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 for that long, it was a 50-50 partnership, a much different dynamic than, if, than one of three or one of 17. Um, you know, it was a very, very big emotional toll on, 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 on everybody. And um, you know, I would definitely have to say that that is one of the major events um, of, of the company um, you know, over time. But yeah, I mean, you know, in, 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 in that sense, that's kind of the summary, if you will, if I had to kind of summarize the, uh, the, the, the major turning points of, uh, of our fortune loss. Boy, that's to your point. Uh, Two highlights in the tragedy. I'm very sorry to hear that news. You mentioned earlier in the program something that I'd like to come back to, or, or actually, you know, I, it's something I alluded to as well. Um, the this question of the intersection of study and professional success, and uh, another interesting trend I've noticed. Um, that goes hand in hand with the trend I mentioned earlier of those who seem most focused on success will often be less capable of grabbing it. Um, the other thing I've seen is that students and graduate students in particular seem to understand how their degree prepares them for specific professional outcomes, but increasingly they're wanting to explore other avenues that they might be qualified for, which I think is a positive trend. And looking back now on your studies and career, how would you say that your English degrees prepared you for life as an entrepreneur and an investor? Okay. Um, well, um, at least at least initially and ostensibly, the English uh, nexus is there with uh, the naming of Fortinbras. Um, the name of, of Fortinbras comes from uh, from Shakespeare, um, specifically Hamlet. And this is a throwback to my days at, at Emory. Um, I took uh, Professor Harry Rushi's class, now still I think a professor at Emory, uh, on Shakespeare and. Um, Harry's a wonderful personality, and, and my love through Shakespeare comes through his love through Shakespeare and just seeing his enthusiasm. And we were talking about Hamlet, and, and it's just a very jovial way. He's like, you know, at the end of the play, um, everybody's dead, and, and it is, it is Fortinbras who stakes his, 
his, his flag in the ground and says, I'm gonna clean this damn mess up. Um, and the soundbite that we've uh, uh, appropriated for the purpose of speaking to external investors is this. We named the company Fortinbras because it, it is his collective and systematic way of dealing with uncertainty that we strive to emulate uh, with you as an investor. So, you know, that was kind of the soundbite and the spin on the whole thing. So at the very least, you know, the nexus of kind of English and, and, and finance comes through kind of the naming of, of not just Fortinbras, but other legal entities. I continue that tradition of taking companies out of, out of Shakespeare. I founded with my son um, a company in Nairobi um, called Benvolio Impact Investments to support a, a, a building of a school that we're doing down there. Benvolio, of course, being uh, uh, um, Romeo's uh, right hand. So, you know, there there is is that kind of approximation simply uh, simply for that. But you know, I'm a firm believer that uh, you know you need a broad approach to the humanities in, in to be able to understand and 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 if you will, communicate and and interact in the world. Um, not just me, um, uh, Nassim Taleb, who wrote the book The Black Swan. Uh, himself is a huge advocate of, of you know, he's an options trader, so a quant on the one hand, but you know, he reads the classics on the, on, on the other hand. And since you mentioned my, um, uh, my library, the, um, if I just pick kind of these two books out, you, you see really how the nexus of, of literature and, and, and finance, and I'm not, this was not prepared beforehand, but you know, this being uh, war, war and peace, and this being uh, you know, value at risk, kind of sitting side by side. So, I like to think that you know, what the hell, there's 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 a lot more to life than just kind of one narrow approach to 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 things. Um, incidentally, I was uh, on a conference earlier this week where they were talking about the best CEOs for biotech companies and some of these very very specific companies are not the innovators who create. Is science, but rather kind of some of these kind of more broad approach to, um, uh, yeah, to, to business beyond that. So, yeah, that's a bit of a long-winded approach, but, uh, you know, it's still the, both of those degrees, both of the finance and the English, still to tend to uh, permeate uh, my life and, and enrich my life in wonderful ways. I would point out in terms of those two books you grabbed that they're not just an illustrative just juxtaposition of your career. They're actually the same story told with two different sets of characters. <laughs> so, um, so I'd like to open this up in a moment to uh, questions from the audience as well. Uh, so if anyone has questions for Chris, please put them in the chat function and we'll be sure to read them into the record and have, give him a moment to reflect on those. Um, I would ask one more question of my own, though, as, as folks are working to type up their own, which is, in my experience, innovators and entrepreneurs and investors have an important quality in common, which is that they're rarely satisfied with the status quo, and they're always looking to develop solutions to problems, in part because they tend to see problems as opportunities. And I think you spoke to that a bit um, with the conditions uh, at the moment of, uh, you know, that Ford and Barras was really able to grow, because that was an opportunity. Uh, for others, it was a problem. So what are some things you've innovated recently that you're especially proud of? And what problem are you seeing that you still want to solve for? Um, there is a huge commercial opportunity with the path to net zero. And um, specifically, um, it expresses it in, 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 in our specific activities in, in, around the, the, the realm of carbon pricing, which I can get to in just a second, but kind of broadly, um, you know, the global warming is a wonderful, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. And exactly was what we're doing here. You've seen a huge amount of, of you know, uh, infrastructure plans around uh, clean energy in, in the United States. We have this whole thing called the Green Plan, the Green New Deal in, in, in Europe. Um, and so there's a wonderfully, wonderful space to innovate in where everybody's rushing to throw money at things that uh, in, in this area. 
And uh, one of the uh, one of the things that we're looking at very specifically is is carbon pricing. Um, without getting too much into the details, um, companies are now being limited on the amount that they can pollute. If they pollute above a certain level, they have to buy uh, rights to emit, and those are called carbon emissions. And they have a the price is set by a price discovery process left in free markets. Thank God. Um, and uh, you can trade these uh, these instruments. And one of the you know our narrative there is the the past 17 years we've kind of used systematic models in the fixed income space, where the trends are created by the directional persistence of policymakers. What I mean is, if you think about what the Federal Reserve does with the base rate, they hike, they hike. Hike, then they announce that they will hike, and they continue to hike, and then they will cut, they will cut, they will cut. So it's a very clearly directional persistence, and that creates kind of smoother curves, which are very ideal um, uh, hunting ground for trend models that like ours. And you see exactly the same phenomenon expressed now in carbon price, because policymakers have now said you can pollute X amounts this year. And next year, it's going to be 5% less. And the year after that, 5% less, and so on and so forth. And the forward carbon curve is certainly based on this kind of this, this, this reduction in supply, which is then supply supported. So at least the theory goes, um, you know, if our trend models work well in the rate space, they would work equally well in, in the carbon space. And, and what you mentioned at the blurb at the beginning, that's, you know, we're going um, all into this um, uh, and, and, and stay tuned in 2022 for, uh, for uh, more activity from Fort and Bras in, in the carbon space. But the idea there is just, you know, I think uh, abstracting also for the benefit of people who are looking for, maybe they have the who, uh, but they don't have the what or the how. Um, you know, certainly looking into in, in, into climate as an opportunity is just a, you know this is a a, a a wonderful wonderful disaster if you will for lack of a hope that doesn't come across wrong but it, it really there's a huge opportunity uh, in in, in, the, in that space. I had never heard someone speak about trends being curated by the directional persistence of policymakers, and I think that that's a wonderful turn of phrase uh, and the way that you related that to a, a hunting ground uh, for trends that would inform models. Uh, that's strikingly obvious when you put it in those terms, but yeah. I don't think many people do. And uh, I would just say from a personal standpoint that uh, I think it lends credence to the idea that your storytelling ability creating <laughs> value uh, around these things that were otherwise abstractions that a lot of folks would have a hard time getting their heads around. Well, I think that the, the, yeah, I am the great, great grandson of, of Kate Chopin. And I think that that literary tradition is somehow kind of in the DNA or somehow uh, is still with me. But yeah, I think that, that as I said, part of uh, the challenge really is, is you have to create a, um, you know, a cohesive narrative that sits with people emotionally sometimes. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading right now, actually, we spoke earlier about kind of books uh, to read, and, and we had mentioned uh, Steven Pinker, and um, just this week started Rationality uh, by him, which is a, mm -hmm. you know, the first 45 pages of wonderful. Um, you're nodding, have you read that? Are you familiar with, with that from him? I am not. Uh, the one I think we discussed was uh, the book on humanism, science, uh, et cetera, which is, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the title now. Enlightenment Now. Enlightenment Now. Thank you. It's a wonderful book. And it's 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 certainly in in, in, in that train in, in, in that certainly same vein of things. But this one is more of of uh, in the tradition that Dr. Daniel Kahneman talks about when we when he mentions thinking fast and slow, mm -hmm. which is a, a wonderful, wonderful wonderful book too. Yeah, and I think that that um, uh, and it comes back to what you're saying about kind of storytelling in, in, in narratives. It has to be put into a way that people kind of understand it emotionally, but also when they revert to system two, system two being the coin that, 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 that the phrase that uh, Dan, uh, Kahneman coined in thinking fast and slow, thinking slow is thinking system two. Uh, we really need to kind of employ those uh, that part of your brain 
two. So system one will grab them with a story, but we'll let system two kind of analyze the data in, in a very systematic, uh, systematic way. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the, the, the bit there, but thank you for the, the comment on, on, uh, on, on the narrative. Well, absolutely. And we actually have a great question from the audience that we can end on that ties into this nicely. So uh, the person says, keeping with the literary theme, I've appreciated hearing all of the plot twists in your own story. Over your time as an entrepreneur, what has been one of the most fascinating discoveries, either about yourself or about the journey of an entrepreneur? Hmm. Uh, well, um, I would like—I would almost say that uh, the discovery that entrepreneurs aren't uh, aren't made, but they're, if, if you will, they're born. Um, and I, I like to think that um, I was artificially cast into a corporate world at Citibank in this consulting gig that I did where I was just complete fish out of uh, a complete fish out of water. Um, uh, but um, I feel 100% comfortable in my skin. Um, you know, as I said, do what you love and love what you do. And kind of the rest will, 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 will everything else falls in, in, into place from that. But I think that, you know, the, the, the self-discovery I made is really that it, you have to live that, that, you know, that, that blurb and not just, um, you know, have it on, on, on your to-do list to, to, uh, to, to look at. So it really is, um, you know, as I say, um, the, 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 the who, the what, and, and, and the how finds, um, you know, the right team, find the right um, angle, the niche, the rarefied corner of some space that you want to monopolize. And I, I do that in a, in a very smart way in terms of in terms of the how. Um, this is all with hindsight. This is all based on kind of a singular data point, and I would be very reluctant um, uh, to to abstract to to a, a broader population beyond that. But to the extent that it is kind of uh, you know a lot of my experience crystallizes these these thoughts. Maybe maybe that 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 experience is is helpful to others uh, embarking on that journey. Uh, well, in that optic, uh, there's one more irresistible question that's come in from the audience. Uh, and this picks up on this theme of feeling comfortable in your skin, too, I think. Uh, the person asks, did you hone the impersonation and storytelling skills that were demonstrated here today through your groundbreaking role in the guerrilla theater production of The Lorax on the Emory Quad circa 1990? Um, uh, yes, I think that the, 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 the uh, you know, Dr. Seuss, uh, almost at the same level uh, with, with Shakespeare is, is continued to pepper uh, my career. Um, the, the, that reference is we were part of an environmental group in, at, uh, at, at Emory. And to the extent that my interest in, in climate is certainly a, definitely not a throwback to what I had then carbon trading, not to throw back to what I had there, but certainly is, is born of the same, uh, of the same vein. But yes, you know, I, as, um, you know, my interest in, in Shakespeare, my interest in kind of, if you will, the performance arts as evidenced by that one anecdote that, that um, mentioned, we performed the Lorax on the Emory Quad kind of uh, as, as a bit of a demonstration. Um, yeah, before I became kind of bald, I had long hair and, and was a bit of a, a self-described rebel in, in well i think i think you managed to tackle that last question with a great aplomb and a very straight face so uh, i'm just gonna <laughs> i'm gonna conclude by saying then at the crossroads of uh of dr seuss and some of what you've said today that to uh, mind your risk ratio as you acquire more stars for your star-bellied sneeches uh you know uh, another great Dr. Seuss story. Um, <laughs> but uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining today. This was really a fun conversation, and I appreciate your taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I'm also say that I'm very uh, excited to see what this carbon uh, marketplace uh, product looks like in the future. And I hope you'll maybe stop back in at some point and tell us more about that too. 
Well, um, I'm very pleased to continue the engagement with, with, with Emory. Um, you know, kind of being uh, given this award has kind of increased my interest in, uh, at Emory. Um, you know, we were back at campus for the first time in, in 31 years, uh, myself and my wife and our teenage kids, as you mentioned, are, are, are looking at Emory. So we're, we continue to be engaged a bit more, not just financially, but also uh, want to be engaged more in kind of also what you're doing there at the hatchery. So yes, um, uh, we will uh, we will keep you up to speed, and, and I hope vice versa uh, to the extent that maybe of what I've said has has sent off any uh, signals with anybody in in um, you know who are looking to define start their path. I am certainly uh, here to, to to bounce ideas off of. So in that sense, thank you very much for that. Thank you everybody for listening. Have a great weekend and uh, stay healthy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.